If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another Bradbury 100. And it's a Bradbury month. Well, at the time of recording at least, it's October and what more Bradbury month could there be? Ray is very much associated with that month because he wrote three books set in October and he also wrote screenplay versions of two of those books. So that's an awful lot of October writing that he did, as well as the odd short story and the odd essay here and there. So what I'd like to do today is just talk through a few things about those three major October works, starting with 1955's The October Country, which of course is a short story collection. Now I've spoken about The October Country and its relationship to Dark Carnival before, so I'm not going to go into every detail of it, but just know that Bradbury's first book, Dark Carnival, came out in 1947 from a relatively small press, Arkham House, and eight years later he had the opportunity to reissue that book through a mainstream publisher. Now, Ray being Ray, he wasn't happy just to reprint the original work. He had to have a little tamper with it, take some stories out, put some stories in, rearrange them, rewrite some of them to make it as good a book as he could and the book that best represented the Ray Bradbury of 1955. I've written about this on my website, so go and have a look on there if you want to know more about it. A couple of things about the October Country I think make it distinctive. One of these is the illustrations, and I think this will depend on which edition you have, but certainly the first edition, and for a good many decades, most other editions, had line drawings by Joe Mugnani interspersed within the book. Not quite as many illustrations as in Golden Apples of the Sun, where Mugnani did a line drawing for every single story, but the October Country has a good handful of illustrations, some of which are truly stunning. Some of them are full page. Ray's explanation of what he means by the October country is given in a sort of a, a summary paragraph at the beginning of the book, so before you get to any of the stories. He has this paragraph, which you will see repeated all over the internet at this time of year. Ray says that the October country is that country where it is always turning late in the year. That country where the hills are fog and the rivers are mist, where noons go quickly, dusks and twilights linger, and midnights stay. That country composed in the main of cellars, sub-cellars, coal bins, closets, attics, and pantries faced away from the sun. That country whose people are autumn people, thinking only autumn thoughts, whose people passing at night on the empty walks sound like rain. And I've said before that that, to me, 
almost sounds like the introduction to an anthology TV series. You recall on The Twilight Zone how Rod Serling would always explain to you what The Twilight Zone was, this sort of bizarre concept. Uh, Travelling through another dimension, there's the signpost up ahead, all of that. Well, this, to me, sounds like the intro to a TV anthology of Bradbury stories. So if anyone ever does one, they should call it The October Country, and they should use part of that as the intro. The stories in The October Country are mostly horror stories, fantasy stories, dark fantasy stories. It's not really a collection for people who like the lighter things in life. That's not to say that there is no humour in the book. I think it's a very humorous book. Stories such as Skeleton, for example, really walk a a tightrope between being hilarious and being frightening. And I think Skeleton achieves both. It's funny because it's scary, and it's scary because it's funny. So it has humour in there, but it's always tied to dark ideas. So if you don't like the darker side of life, I don't think you'd like the October Country. But some of the stories in there are 100% classics. Skeleton, I've mentioned, The Crowd, The Scythe, The Lake. Really, really classic stories. So that was published in 1955, and around the same time, Ray was busy writing a screenplay. Having finished his work on Moby Dick for John Huston, he was now writing a script for Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly was an actor, a director, a dancer, famous for Singing in the Rain and various other films, and he had expressed an interest in working with Bradbury and vice versa. So Bradbury started writing what he called The Dark Carnival. So he reverted to the title of that first book of his. He's just published The October Country, which is a reworking of The Dark Carnival. He's no longer using the title Dark Carnival. So he picks up that unused title and uses it for this new film script. So he writes a couple of drafts of the script in the late 1950s. Gene Kelly apparently shops it around Hollywood and other places, trying to raise funding for the film, but is unsuccessful. And so the script comes back to Ray, and what's he going to do with it? The best thing appears to be turning it into a book. So that's what he does. He rewrites the screenplay into a novel. He works at it on and off for a period of about five years, and eventually the book is published in 1962. There's an interesting sidetrack along the way of turning the screenplay into a book, and that is that at one point in drafting the book, Ray writes it in the first person, and he retitles it Jamie and Me. And it's during this phase of rewriting that the book inevitably comes to focus more on one of his central characters than the other. If you know the book, you know the characters of Will and Jim, the lighter character and the darker character, the one boy who was born before midnight and the other one who was born just after midnight. Now, because Ray was writing this early version of the novel in the first person and was doing it through the eyes of Will... That version of the manuscript has a bit more focus on Will and his family than it does on Jim and his family. At some point, Ray decided 
that that wasn't working for him. So he shifted it back to a more detached narrator. So it becomes third person. The narrator is no longer part of the story, but is outside of the story looking in. But the finished novel, I think, still has slightly more about Will and his father than it does about Jim and his mother. I think that phase of it being written from Will's point of view still had an influence on the final version of the book that we know and love today. So the book comes out in 1962. For many critics, it's still seen as a later work. This is something that's very bizarre to me. Critics really solidified their opinion of Bradbury by about 1980. And most of the critical writing about Bradbury's works doesn't cover anything that he wrote after 1980. On that basis, Something Wicked is a late career work. And once Ray gets into the 1960s, he doesn't publish many books. What he does do is write loads of screenplays, loads of poetry and loads of stage plays. So it's almost as if he's given up writing conventional prose fiction by about 1964. And that's why, to some critics, Something Wicked from 1962 is seen as a late Bradbury work. Of course, that's totally incorrect. And he was still publishing new material in the 2000s. So the latter part of Bradbury's career had this really long tail. And that's something that critics have yet to fully explore. Anyway, I'm going off at a tangent there. Something Wicked, 1962. Now, it takes about 20 years, but eventually Something Wicked is made into a film that is actually called Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes with a screenplay credit that reads Ray Bradbury. Nobody else. The reality is that what you saw on the screen was probably about 50% Bradbury and probably about 50% from other writers who worked on the script and the director, Jack Clayton. The film came out in 1983. Before it was released, there was a preview which was considered to be a disaster and the film had to be hurriedly reworked to make it more effective for audiences. In my opinion, it's a pretty good film, except for the final act. The setup is good, the development is intriguing, but it never quite delivers a satisfactory resolution. Oh, it has an ending, but it's a bit clumsy. It's not entirely clear what's really happening, at least not as clear as in the book. Some of the strongest scenes in the film are scenes that are taken directly from Bradbury's screenplay and which are based on scenes in the novel and which are in turn based on scenes in Ray's original 1950s screenplay. And for me, among the strongest scenes are the scene where the boys are down in the drain, hiding from Mr. Dark, and up above, on the grating, just above their heads, Mr. Dark is talking to Will's father. It's a very powerful scene, a very clever scene, to have two levels of action going on. And that scene was in Ray's original 1955 script. So it's one of the earliest ideas that he had for the film, and it carries through all the way through to the 1983 film, virtually unchanged. Similarly, the scene which is usually cited as the best scene in the film is the library scene, 
where Mr. Dark is trying to track down the two boys and he bumps into Mr. Holloway and he begins tearing pages out of a book. Now, the precise detail of that scene changed through different versions of the script, but the fundamental scene itself, again, is there in the original 1950s script. So this is further evidence to me that Ray is more successful in many ways in writing short things. He's successful at writing short stories. He's successful at writing scenes. His plotting of longer works isn't quite as confident or assured. And so as Something Wicked goes from being the original 1950s screenplay through being a novel and then turning back into a screenplay and then turning into an actual film, as it goes through that process, the plotting goes all over the place and sometimes gets confused and sometimes gets lost. But the strength of individual scenes carries through because that's what Ray is really, really good at. And incidentally, we can trace one key sequence all the way back to 1948 because the idea in the book and in the film of the carousel that goes backwards to de-age people and then goes forwards to age them again, that comes from a 1948 short story called The Black Ferris, which uses not a carousel but a Ferris wheel. And there's nothing wrong with the Black Ferris at all. It's a, a, a charming little story. But I've always maintained that switching to a carousel makes a lot more sense. I mean, Bradbury makes the Black Ferris work because everything he writes is so convincing in that short story. But by switching from a Ferris wheel to a carousel, he's suddenly gone from something which has no sense of direction... A Ferris wheel can go clockwise or anti-clockwise, depending on where you're standing when you're watching it, to a carousel which can only go one way, because it's got horses on it, and the horses have to face forward as they travel. So by switching from Ferris to carousel, Ray has really strengthened the idea by using something which has an inherent sense of direction, and therefore an inherent sense of wrongness when it goes backwards. Now, if that's all that Ray ever wrote to do with October, I think Bradbury would still forever be associated with October. But for him, that wasn't enough. Oh no, he had to go for the hat trick. He went for The Halloween Tree, which is a book that came out in 1973. But just as with Something Wicked This Way Comes, it began as something else. It all dates back to the late 1960s, when Ray watches a Charlie Brown special on TV, which was called something like It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And the basic premise is that the kids are waiting around for the arrival of the Great Pumpkin, which is a kind of Santa Claus for Halloween. But they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And guess what? The Great Pumpkin never shows. Now, Ray watched this live on TV when it was broadcast, and he was incensed that the great pumpkin, so anticipated, never turned up. The next day, he talks to his good friend Chuck Jones, the animator. You know, the guy who did all those Bugs Bunny cartoons and Roadrunner, Daffy Duck, all of those. Fantastic filmmaker and a good friend of Ray's. And they get to talking about the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Did you see it? Yes. Oh, how disappointing. It turns out 
they both agreed that the film made a fundamental mistake in not showing the Great Pumpkin. It's like having a film about Santa Claus and Santa never turns up. They were very disappointed and they vowed to put things right by doing a correct Halloween film. Both Ray and Chuck really believed that if you're going to present something which is based on a mythology, as an artist you've got to believe in that mythology. Even if you don't believe it in real life, for the purpose of the artwork, you've got to show that belief. So they vowed to do something about it. Ray went off and wrote a script called The Halloween Tree. Chuck was going to produce and direct, but of course he would need money for that. So he touts the screenplay around all the usual places, trying to get funding. And guess what? Nobody wanted it. So the film was not made. We've heard this before, haven't we? We heard this with Something Wicked, which started out as a screenplay, then became a book, then became a film. The same thing happens with The Halloween Tree. The screenplay does not sell, so Ray turns it into a book. And then, lo and behold, 20 years later, the book is made into a film. Now, the book of The Halloween Tree was not originally written to be a children's book. Ray wrote it with the same kind of complexity of language and the same kind of attitude that you find in all of his other books. Ray didn't write to a market. He wrote what he wanted to write, what he believed in. He did rely on editors to help him to strengthen his works, but he never targeted a specific audience. Having said that, it's fairly obvious that if you're making something about Halloween, its most likely audience is going to be children, unless you do it like a John Carpenter Halloween, where you do it as out-and-out -out horror. But if it's about trick-or-treat and the origins of the myths of Halloween, that's probably going to appeal more to kids than to adults. Or maybe it's going to appeal to parents and children. So the first edition, and the version of the Halloween tree that stuck around for a good 30-odd years, was editorially adjusted to be suitable as a children's book. So there were a number of passages that were modified in the editing process that made it more like a children's book. And really, that's how it sold over the years. It's become a perennial, I believe, largely because it appeals to kids. Each generation of parents buys the book for the kids. The other thing, I think, that makes The Halloween Tree a perennial favourite is that it's didactic. It doesn't just exploit Halloween. It tells you where the ideas come from. The characters in the book are taken to medieval France. They're taken to Ireland. They're taken to Mexico. They learn about the origin of the Halloween myth, the variations of the Halloween myth, and the significance of the Halloween myth. Although it's not a factual book, it does teach you about the facts of Halloween. What I've never done is check the accuracy of Ray's facts. I'm fairly sure that at the time he wrote the book, he was basing it on the best knowledge of Halloween. He would have done the research, no question. But what I don't know is whether historians and scholars have since revised our understanding of the origin of Halloween. So there's an interesting project for a student. Do some research, find out 
what today are considered to be the origins and meanings of Halloween, and then compare that with what Ray wrote in the book. Maybe you are a student. Maybe you're a teacher and you have students. If anyone out there knows of any such study, if anyone's written an essay or a thesis or a treatise comparing the known facts of Halloween with Bradbury's facts about Halloween, let me know. I'd love to know about that. So 1972, the Halloween tree comes out and it becomes a perennial. 20 years later, we go full circle and Ray's book is turned into a film. If only the people who made the film in 1993 had been around in the late 60s, they could have had Ray's original script. But instead, they wanted to adapt the book. So Ray writes a brand new script. He makes some changes. For example, he has a more diverse cast of characters. Only slightly, but slightly is better than nothing. In the film, one of the kids is a girl. Whereas in the book, they're all boys. So that's his token rebalancing of gender, if you like. The film is quite successful at what it does. It's very cheap-looking animation. It looks a bit Scooby-Doo-ish in many respects. But the background paintings are really very nice. There's a very good depiction of Greentown, which is the fictional version of Waukegan, of course. And that TV film has itself become a perennial classic. And there is talk of there being a new film. Now, there's always talk of there being a new film based on Bradbury, and they very rarely come to anything. But just a couple of weeks ago, as I record this, there was an announcement that a new film version of The Halloween Tree is in development. It may never happen, of course, and what we don't know at this stage is whether we're talking about an animated film, because the original film was animated, if you like, or whether we're talking live action. Personally, I'm very open to that idea. I'd love to see a new version of The Halloween Tree, as long as it keeps to the spirit of the original Halloween Tree. So as long as it's basically doing the same thing as the original script and the book, I'd be happy. Incidentally, Ray's screenplay for the 1993 film version won him an Emmy Award, which means there were actually two members of the Bradbury family who got Emmys, because his daughter Tina also won an Emmy for her work on soap operas. So those are the three major Bradbury works based on October. The October Country, Something Wicked, and The Halloween Tree, plus all of the screenplay work that Ray did. And with all of that body of work, Ray can claim the month of October so here's wishing you a happy October and a happy Halloween, even if you're listening to this in November or April or whenever. Just before we go, let me remind you that on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I've got pages telling the history and development of the October Country, Something Wicked and the Halloween Tree. And on my YouTube channel, Bradbury101, I've got little videos that I made about a couple of those. So check it all out. You can find links to everything on bradburymedia.co.uk. Stick around because there's more to come from Bradbury 100 and we're very rapidly approaching the true story of Ray Bradbury's Uncle Lester. 
See you next time on Bradbury 100. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 101